Commence primary ignition. Depend greatly on our own point of view. You must unlearn what you have learned. I am looking forward to completing your training. Welcome to Coruscant Community College, a new podcast that focuses on studying Star Wars as text. I'm Craig Dickinson. And I'm Matt Leader. Today on the show, we'll continue our series of in-depth examinations of the Star Wars films, with a deconstruction of Solo, A Star Wars Story. So as we did with The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith, we're going to be sharing our general thoughts on this film and its place in the larger Star Wars canon. And we're going to break down the movie by focusing on the aspects we covered in Season 1. So one thing I wanted to mention just off the top, just to kind of set context, that we are watching the films in chronological order. Uh, This is a different order that we teach them in. So this was kind of interesting to do this film as if I would teach it, I've never taught it. So I'm definitely looking at this with new eyes. Uh, but I did want to mention that this film, at least at the beginning, is set six years after Revenge of the Sith. And then the bulk of it is nine years after, just so uh, we can have a frame of reference for where we're at. So I guess that makes Luke six and then Luke and Leia six and then Luke and Leia nine mm-hmm. uh, through the bulk of this, if you can kind of imagine that happening. Do we ever get an age for Han in the movie? Um. I hear I'm not in the movie. Right. I think in there's some supplemental material we get that he's 20 and then 23. I so think early is, 20s. Yeah, yeah, I think is what we're going with. Okay. Roughly Harrison Ford's age in A New Hope minus mm. 10. Yeah. But I think he's a little, excuse, a little bit younger than that. So uh, let's go ahead and jump into cinematography. Another thing to mention too is that this is the first film we've done that Lucas is not involved in. And so I went back, I had to figure out like I knew Ron Howard directed it and we'll talk a little bit about him. And this film has a, has a really good pedigree though. Like Ron Howard is a, you know, he's an Oscar winning director for a beautiful mind. And then, you know, we get to cinematography. We have Bradford Young, who's the cinematographer who uh, was an Oscar nominee for Arrival. So, you know, he knows what he's doing. What were some things that you noticed from cinematography, Matt? Well, first off, and this you know, this isn't really tied to cinematography specifically, but the first thing that really popped out to me was the editing of the film. In particular, my favorite cut, and I'm sure it's your favorite cut too, is when Han is trying to leave Karelia the first time and he turns to the Imperial officer, he goes, I'm going to be a pilot. And the Imperial officer says, we'll have you flying in no time. Smash cut, <laughs> yep. flying through the air on Mimbam, I believe, and... It's the mud and the war, and I. it's such a fantastic cut. But there's there's a couple moments. Just the editing in general feels a little tighter and feels a little bit more energetic and purposeful because I think a lot of the prequel movies that we just watched, the editing was in a style that was trying to be functional. Like, it was, it was very about, like, creating clarity in what was happening. So it wasn't like super experimental. I didn't see a ton of editing choices that felt like, oh, they're really trying to show some meaning with it or create some tension or to have humor in the editing in particular. Whereas I felt like in Solo, that felt way more present. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, the editing was one thing that jumped out to me. I, wa- I was rewatching the film uh, this last week and just, wow, it is so quick. It's so dynamic. It's so different than what we've watched for the last three films. It's like, it's, it's kind of perfect to just drop this in here and see for contrast. And then I had to, you know, like, who did the editing? I had to know. And, and so I looked it up and uh, it's this gentleman named Pietro uh, Scalia, who's won multiple Oscars. And so, again, going to the pedigree, I mean, like, these guys, they put this crack team together to put this, you know, this film should really be, in my opinion, should be looked at as, as a better film than a lot of people give it credit for. That's a really interesting point because everyone I talk to loves this movie. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't, I honestly have not heard a single person who doesn't like this film. I think a lot of it, it got caught up in the very chaotic wake of The Last Jedi and if I'm remembering correctly, it was only released six months after that. And so yeah, if if that. Yeah. And so I think with all of the controversy around The Last Jedi, and then so recent, like there's a little bit of maybe Star Wars fatigue for filmgoers, because this is a fantastic movie and I've never heard anyone disparage it. So I think it's like a a sleeper hit that's not a sleeper. I think people like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of like kind of nuts and bolts things that I looked at. I mean, I don't want to touch on, on touch on some of them. And the first, the first thing is, I mean, I noticed some interesting things with circles again in this film, which is cool. You get that really early one when Lady Proxima comes out of the water, um, that they're circled up that way. And then there's circles around the Sabak table. But what I think is really interesting is that, and I've seen this in documentaries, I think probably some of the stuff that's on the disc is that Bradford Young uses a lot of natural lighting sources. Like the lights that you see in the scene is what's actually giving the light. And so this film is a lot darker. It is. There's a lot more shadow in this one. Yeah. It's very soft indoors. And so it looks very different than what we've seen so far from Star Wars. It's very unique, uh, kind of impressionistic in this film. The color, the use of color in this is, as well, especially at the beginning, it was very striking to me that it's very blue when you get back to Proxima's camp. And, you know, we talked about in our cinematography episode that blue can represent sadness and kind of depression. And you get, you know, the scrum rats are very, I mean, that was, that'd be how they'd feel, you know, they're under that oppression. But you see, like, at one point, Han moves Kira into the light and it's kind of gold, which uh, can represent excitement or possibility, optimism. Um, And, you know, it's very intentional when you're doing that. It also had that at the beginning when he's trying to jumpstart the speeder that there's flashes of gold with that too. So it's very artistic for lack of a better word, but there's a lot of um, interesting, a lot of extreme close-ups in this film too. Speaking of camera work, again, back to that stealing speeder scene, it zooms in just like on his hands. You don't actually see what's going on right away. And I always think about when it zooms right in on Han's eye, right when he's about to go to light speed right out of the maw. I mean, it zooms in super close, which is cool. And then also, you know, shots from the trailer, like, Han's holster when Emphis Ness shows up at the end, you kind of see her out of focus. Yeah, that was that was one I I hadn't written down too. And when one I hadn't seen, I hadn't noticed before was that um, right after he shoots Beckett, the camera and I just happened to pause it at that point is and I look back and, and it's a, and it's extreme wide shot where you can just see Han barely make out that there's a character and and Chewie. And it's like man, he is alone now because Kira's about to leave and his mentor's gone. Uh, you know, at his own hand, but, you know, you can see that, and it's like one of the only shots like that in the entire film. But for the most part, I just thought, man, the camera works really dynamic. It's very modern. 
versus you know the prequels, which is kind of more of a classic style. Yeah, it's a lot more static, uh, except for maybe moments in Revenge of the Sith. But overall, the prequels tend to be much more static. And this feels just like a modern action movie yeah. as far as the camera work is concerned. Yeah, and I should mention, of course, the the great scene with the conveyx too. I mean, that's just a it's a fascinating scene where the air yeah airplane the <laughs> the train moves upside down. Yeah. Um, again, more close ups like when when the range trooper puts his foot down. You really are sucked into the action, and you can feel the danger. You can almost feel the wind in the way that it's shot so dynamically. So just just a great job with cinematography. Yeah, completely agree. And I think that's a good transition into the sound. Because the music from from Solo, you know, I'm going to commit a little bit of Star Wars heresy because if I look at the soundtrack for a whole movie, I honestly think that the soundtrack for Solo might be my favorite soundtrack out of all the Star Wars films. Uh, John Powell. Yep. Uh, and of course, John Williams uh, created the the opening theme for uh, Han. Right. But, but John Powell just knocks it out of the park. And I think the only other composer to work on a Star Wars film is Michael Giacchino. But I, I really, really sincerely hope that John Powell comes back because the Enfys Nest theme is up there for me as an iconic Star Wars track. And it reminds me of uh, Duel of the Fates with the, the chanting. And I don't know, it, it just struck me as so interesting. The first time I, I remember sitting in the theater watching it, and uh, it struck me as just a powerful, aggressive theme, which is an interesting choice for Enfys Ness after we find out that they're actually kind of the proto-rebellion. Right. And they're not really the bad guys. But the mind mission uh, is a great, uh, great moment of the soundtrack. Han and, and Kira's theme is fantastic as well. Agreed. And I think Han gets his first actual true theme. If I'm remembering correct, that Han never had a true theme song from any of the movies until this one. Yeah, I had a lot written down for that as well, and and I agree that John. I hope John Powell comes back. I mean, he's I've done seen some of his stuff, and even like How to Train Your Dragon, it's yeah. is great. I mean, it's a kids movie, but it's, the music is amazing. The score is amazing. Yes. Yeah. So I from research, I, I realized or I saw that uh, John Williams did yeah the Hans theme, which you hear at the beginning. You hear that several times kind of mm -hmm. when it's like Han springs into action. And so that's kind of like John Williams' biggest contribution to this. But Powell uses his, you know, his own themes, the Emphasis Nest theme, again, that's amazing. The Han and Kira theme is beautiful. I really like Chewbacca's theme, yeah. which Chewbacca never had a theme either. You hear that the first time uh, when they come onto the snow planet, Vandor 1. And it's kind of regal, but also tribal in a way. You know, it's, it's a really interesting song. But I also love that John Powell uses leitmotif throughout this thing. I mean, his own stuff, but you also get tons and tons of nods to, to William's work mm -hmm. as well. And so I was kind of just keeping track of those as a almost turn off the visual and just you know, or close my eyes and just listen for, for things I heard. And, you know, I think most people look at where Han sees the Millennium Falcon for the first time and they hear, you know, the main title of Star Wars and... You get that a couple of other key times, like the first time that Han flies the Millennium Falcon when Chewie sits down uh, a little bit later on. And it's kind of like, yeah, we're putting the pieces together for A New Hope. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way I'm reading that. Did you have any other leitmotifs that you noticed from the original, original yeah. trilogy? Yeah. So um, the one that always stands out to me is, I believe it's the TIE Fighter attack 
when they are flying into or you know near the maw and the tie fighters are are after them i'm blanking on the name the, the true name of the track but it's from uh, a new hope when the tie fighters are attacking yeah i had that one too it's the here they come yeah and i had and i had to look these up i don't have these off the top <laughs> yeah. of my head i mean i'm looking reading off my notes right now yeah that whole sequence getting out of i'm blanking on the, the name castle right run. now castle run thank you uh you get you get the the death star theme mm-hmm. when the when the star destroyer shows up and then you get here they come yeah and then you get the asteroid theme from empire as the chase continues where they're they're coming after him and he's you know dodging all the the debris and so those are great and of course you know we talked about this in a previous episode that the imperial march shows up as source music right uh, which is cool. And then I mean, that's the one thing I had for vocal sounds too, is that you have, there's kind of a narration or or a, a voiceover where they're, you know, it's the recruitment pitch. I actually think that this is one of the strengths of Solo is, at least for parts of it, the way they tie the solo of this movie to the solo of the future that we see in the original trilogy. Um, and I like that they do that through the motifs. Like we we get the echoes of Empire Strikes Back in this movie where Hans, you know, of course he has confidence flying through the asteroids in Empire Strikes Back. Right. I mean, he made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs, rounding down, of course. (laughs) And, you know, I I think that L3 being the quote unquote brain of the Falcon is another great piece because really the Falcon is just this freighter. I mean, to me, the way I read it, is it's kind of like a semi truck of of the Star Wars galaxy. Yep. <laughs> it's a it's a it's for shipping things, and so but somehow it it survives and it's this amazing ship, and I think the fact that L three is tied to it uh, is a really interesting way of kind of in canon giving the ship superpowers as it were, right? Uh, and giving it um, sentience, but just like a little something special because it is a special ship. Absolutely. So one more, I had one more little bit before we get to performance, and I'm sure we'll talk more about L3 when we get down there because I had some stuff about that too. But I did notice, and I, I had never heard it this time I've seen this film, I don't know, a dozen times, is that the original Imperial leitmotif that's only used in A New Hope and then briefly it's used in Rogue One showed up in this one too as soon as the range trooper showed up. As soon as that you see that foot come down, and it's it's one one quote of it, that's it. Just one little bit. I'm like, oh my, I had to go back and rewind. Yep, there it is. So Powell is just just masterfully weaving in classic themes, like you said, tying uh, this and and Han to the original trilogy and that version of things. So, uh, so yeah, let's talk about performance. What did you think about performances? What did you notice? Overall, I thought the acting was fantastic, really across the board. I I love Woody Harrelson. Paul Bettany's always been a fantastic actor. Amelia Clark, uh, I've been a big fan of hers uh, from Game of Thrones. And she's done some other projects, but she's a fantastic actress. And I think for me, the two big unknowns were Donald Glover and Alden Ehrenreich. I'm going to call him Alden. <laughs> yeah, Alden. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and especially Alden, because Han Solo is such an iconic character. I mean, and Harrison Ford is such an iconic actor. When I first heard they were making a solo movie, I rolled my eyes and said, that's a terrible decision and they will live to regret it how can you have someone play Han Solo? I could see Lando because we really don't get that much of him, but I just didn't feel like they could really separate 
Han Solo from Harrison Ford. And Alden does it. He pulls it off. Really, I was blown away. I think he plays a young Han Solo fantastic. And I've I've heard people say this uh, before too, and I completely agree with it, that he's not really doing an impression. He is just playing the same character traits as Han Solo. He's brash, he's arrogant, but deep down, he's not a bad person. He doesn't want to hurt people. He breaks the law. He's an outlaw, a vigilante in some sense, but but it's not to hurt other people. It's to survive. His goal to me feels like survival without hurting people, which is, I think is a very interesting contrast to Kira and Amelia Clark, who is a survivor, as, as Paul Bettany says towards the end of the film. But I think hers is a more desperate survival where she will stab you in the back if that's what it takes to live. And I don't see Han doing that. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I'm, I agree with just about everything that you said. Uh, I figured we'd probably be on the same page with this. I, I've never watched Game of Thrones, but I know you're a big fan of that. So I was going to make sure that, that that got brought up and I'm glad that you did. On the other hand, though, I was a big fan of Donald Glover since Community. Hmm. That was one of, I loved that show. And so I was excited to see that he was cast as as Lando. And uh, he's, I think he's just incredibly charismatic and just a lot of fun when he's on screen. But I also agree with the whole entire cast is, is great. Aaron Reich is, is also, you know, there's only a couple other things that you can kind of see him in. Um, one of which was uh, Hail Caesar. Yeah. He's good in that too. So that's another thing that you can kind of check out for that. But and yeah, Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany's awesome no matter what he's playing. So much. Oh, another thing I want to mention uh, just was, we haven't talked about him yet. I'm going to try and say his name right. Jonas Suotomo. Yeah. Playing Chewbacca. I mean, this guy took over from a legend, you know, with Peter Mayhew. And he is, he completely embodies Chewbacca. Like it's, I mean, I know intellectually that it's not the same guy underneath the suit, but it feels like Chewie. And he does such a great job with the body language, you know, and as much as possible to get facial expressions out of that thing. He communicates so well with that. And he and Aaron Reich together, they have, I think, just amazing chemistry. Some of the things um, that I picked out dialogue were absolutely the two of them together. And when he, uh, when, when Han is, is asking to be staked, you know, he's like, I'm serious, stake me. Don't, and then Chewie says, don't listen to him. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very much that same dynamic that we get in Force Awakens. Yes, I do. Every time, you know, it's, uh, it's that, that it feels like the same characters. It does. In a lot of ways. And so great casting and the, the two of them are just very much on point, I think. I think that's, that's what makes the, this film is I actually quite like the writing of the general plot of the story. I think it feels like just a very fun adventure film, but I don't think it works if the actors don't have that chemistry where it feels like the same characters that we grow to know and love in the original trilogy. And it really does. You said you wanted to talk a little bit about L3. What were your thoughts about her? So I, I love that she becomes part of the Falcon. And it just makes that line, you know, that 3PO says in Empire about your, and I'm not sure where your ship learned to communicate, but has <laughs> the most peculiar dialect where, you know, I see that now and, and I cannot not think that he's talking about L3. L3 is talking smack to him in the way that she does. And, you know, she's being condescending and it just kind of changes, it changes that scene. And I love the fact that, you know, you get new Star Wars and it colors the rest of Star Wars. And so every time you watch it, 
it's like you're watching it for the first time in a certain way. Yeah. Because you got this new information. And, you know, seeing the Han and Lando dynamic in this film does that too for Empire. So some of my favorite lines from this movie are, you mentioned it, it reminds you of, like, that's the character we're going to see. So when Lando says things like, everything you heard about me is true. I mean, that's just, that's Billy D. Williams just dripping with, dripping with charm and, and arrogance. And I, I've really come to enjoy the line, I don't like it. I don't agree with it, but I accept it. What a great line and, and you know, not a bad uh, philosophy for life, honestly. And you, I mean, you already mentioned not if you round down, buddy. That's, I mean, that just <laughs> makes you laugh too. 190 years old, you look great. You know, all of these things that are, again, Han and Chewy moments. So did you have anything else on performance before we move on? Um, there was honestly nothing that really stood out to me. Uh, I mean, everyone was kind of on point. You know, there's nothing really for me to point out other than, you know, the couple moments that I really love. When we were first introduced to Drayden, Drayden Voss and we see him dealing with the regional governor, like that's the perfect yeah. introduction. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love yep. Paul Bettany's self-assuredness and it's like he's smiling, but you know he's not smiling on the inside. Right. Like he'll kill you in a second, but he's being very polite. I think he just plays that off really well. There's just There's just a ton of little moments that I love throughout the film. Not to take too much time to name them all, but... It's really fantastically acted. Yeah, and that's another good, you know, going back to the editing too, that that comes right after you hear that he's, you know, talking to, or he's dealing with the regional governor and then you see how he's dealing with him. Uh, so I just had a couple of things, just the fact that I thought it was cool that Han's costume's kind of inverted at the beginning where he's got a white vest over a black shirt. Lando's wardrobe is amazing. And it's great that they played up on that with, you know, all those capes. I just thought that was just a lot of just little nods to things that have either been in directly in the films or just kind of in pop culture in general. I do like a lot um, what they did with Kira in the time gap that she does feel significantly older. And that's just, you know, essentially hairstyle and and costuming that she feels like a, a different character, or at least a different version of the character that she uh, truly has evolved. So I just thought it was, you know, it's excellent work all around. So how about setting and design? Uh, what were your thoughts on those? Um, the thing that stands out to me the most, and I do, I love Corellia, and that was good just to see see Corellia, and then you know, it's really, it's a, not a good place to come from. Um, heavy industrial, lots of smog, lots of grays, even in the daytime. Uh, I love Mimban. I just thought it was mm -hmm. great that they included Mimban and that it's completely shrouded in fog, uh, which is, of course, a nod to Splinter of the Mind's Eye and the fact that you know, had that been filmed as the original Star Wars sequel that you wouldn't really see anything. And so you could do it on the cheap and they totally just leaned into that. Like you don't get to see anything that could totally, and it probably is like just on a soundstage, but you get a wide variety of, of locations in this, you know, you get yet another snow planet, which is kind of fun. Um, you get Kessel finally get Savarine, another desert planet. And then I had to look this one up. Numidian prime is the jungle planet at the end, which I kind of, I really, the more I see when they do lots and lots of planets like this, the more I appreciate Rogue One for like telling us, because I just, I'm just kind of a nut for that stuff. I want to know what it's called. But I, I think just a great mix of environments and colors. I think for me, there's a couple, the two locations, I guess I'll say that really stand out to me, like you said, Minban, fantastic. Um, but I also just love what they're doing with it because I feel like it's one of the few times where we really see the empire be the empire. 
in a smaller way. Like, yeah, they blow up Alderaan, but like, this is a small little piece where it feels more intimate in a way and feels like it's tapping into that kind of politically critical elements that that George Lucas had in Star Wars. There's that moment when I think Han says something like, you know, we're the outsiders here. Like, where are we going? <laughs> right. And it's that kind of critical thinking that gets him in trouble in the Imperial Army. And I just love seeing that because it, it's a nod to the fact that it's almost this kind of galactic colonialism that the Empire is dealing in. And it, there is an evilness to that. It's not just blowing up planets, but it's the little things where they're invading this planet, but the propaganda is saying that they're the heroes, they're liberating it. And the people who don't buy into that, like Han, get churned out. Yeah, I had that for, I uh, had that a little bit later on, but I had that as well. You know, that he says, like, it's their planet. We're yeah. the hostiles, right? And that you do get to see the empire at kind of the height of its powers and why it's so bad in that. You know, we don't really get to see in the original trilogy what the Empire is doing. We hear a little bit about it. And of course, we see Alderaan. But things like this, and, and Rebels does a great job, like with Tarkintown on Lothal, where we get to see kind of like the day-to-day, just oppression and totalitarianism, uh, which is great just kind of for world building sake. Uh, but other things I noticed that I really liked, I'm just going to go down to props real quick, is that the dice just keep showing up. Mm-hmm in this film, which they're kind of tying together from Last Jedi, why those dice are important. The Sabat cards and the money, that's kind of cool. And then you get to see Dejeric. That's cool. But like for me, the, the coolest thing, setting design, is Dryden Voss's office and all the Easter eggs that are in there, all these things from Expanded Universe, the old Expanded Universe. Um, but it's great to see Mandalorian armor, especially now with context from the Mandalorian, you're like, if that's Beskar, that thing is worth a lot. Uh, the Sith call it holocron, and then you get fun things like the idol from Raiders of the Lost Ark just shows up in there because Lawrence Kasdan wrote that and this, and so you get kind of cross-universe nods to to things. That's just fun. And, of course, we talked about the clean Millennium Falcon as kind of just a departure and also a good way to kind of set uh, time-wise, set this film time-wise. Going back just a little bit to you talking about the oppression that we see, we also see that in Kessel. And I I think that also is great world building because uh, I think there are some very obscure references to Kessel uh, throughout a couple Star Wars movies. I think C-3PO mentions that they're going to be thrown into Kessel, which means nothing to us when you first hear it. And now seeing it, it's like, oh, yeah, that would be really, really bad. The droid escape, I think, has got some great heart and humor. And the whole scene where they're breaking out uh, just has a lot of just fun elements to it. And I think, you know, overall, this movie's got a lot of strong cast and energy because it feels like a little bit of a Indiana Jones in Star Wars universe, Mm -hmm. uh, where it just feels like a fun adventure that's just enjoyable to sit back and watch. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. It just just feels fun, you know, and uh, after kind of the heaviness of some of, and that's, you know, we just did the heavy films and then coming out of Last Jedi, which is a heavy film. This is such a departure and it really, you know, I was going to ask later, but now's as good a time as any. Um, like, do you think that this film works as a one-off with no context? If this was the first Star Wars film that you saw, essentially is what I'm asking, would that, do you think that that would work for you? 
Short answer is yes. Long answer is that the, the weakest parts of the film for me are some of the fan service elements that don't mean anything unless you have the context of everything else. Uh, for me, like when Han gets his name solo, it it kind of, I don't really care that much. It, right. I just thought his name was solo. I, I didn't need like a random explanation for it. And those are very small and forgivable in this movie. So I it doesn't bother me. But I do think if you're watching it, it might be kind of like, well, that was a little weird. <laughs> like, why, why doesn't he have a last name? You know? Right. And, and so for, for us, obviously, in context, we know it's just a little bit of fan service. I think it's probably the easiest film to watch, like, by itself, solo. It's probably the most self-contained narrative-wise. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree. I know that they've, you know, at one point there was plans and maybe we'll still get some sequel, whether it be a Disney Plus series or a feature film. Uh, but I kind of hope that they don't. I, uh, it's, I'm okay with there just being a 10-year gap and that, you know, somewhere in there, Alden Ehrenreich turns into, Har into Harrison Ford and that we can kind of put the pieces together without being, you know, told piece by piece, this is how it goes, which I agree. I think that's kind of the weaker weaker parts of of the film is when they're like, okay, well, this is how he got his name. Here's how he gets his gun. Like, I, I, I really didn't need that. I'm like, yes, we wanted to see him get the Millennium Falcon, and that was a great payoff. Like, let's, I want to see him him get to, get that from Lando. It's good to see him meet up with Chewie. Uh, and that's kind of what I had with, you know, Hero's Journey, just to kind of jump ahead just real fast for that. It kind of just brings, it's kind of or, the origin of Han Solo on his way to becoming you know, who he's going to be in, in A New Hope, but we don't have to get everything. Yeah. Uh, we can leave, we can leave that stuff. I mean, there's a big enough time gap where like, I'm hoping the character is going to evolve over the next decade. You don't have to like make him Harrison Ford and then he's going to be sitting around for 10 years, you know, not, not changing. So. Have you ever read any of the Dr. Afra comics? Not yet. I have not. Cause uh, it reminds me a lot of uh, her, her series is very much Indiana Jones, but Star Wars. And that's the vibe that I get from this. And I think there are at least rumors that a Dr. Afra show was coming to Disney+. Plus. I don't know if that's been confirmed. I know a couple of weeks back, Disney released that there's a whole slate of shows coming to Disney+. Plus. I don't remember if it was on there. Uh, but I, I sincerely hope that we get more of this. I feel like Dr. Afra would be in a very similar vein of adventure. And I think what Solo does really well as well is that it's it's almost like a slice of life from the Star Wars galaxy that isn't tied directly to the main trilogy. Like I know like Han and Chewie, obviously, uh, and of course we have Maul as well. But I feel like in a lot of ways, it's very divorced from the rest of the Star Wars universe. And in a similar vein, that's kind of what a, one of the things I like about The Mandalorian is it feels a little disconnected, except in some parts, especially season two. Right. <laughs> but but a lot of it is kind of standalone, where you see different parts of the galaxy. And I think that's one of the greatest parts of Star Wars, is Lucas created this galaxy where millions of imaginary people live, doing all sorts of things. And Solo kind of explores that a little bit. I really wish that Disney would give us a lot more of that exploration of the galaxy, not just the Skywalker saga. Yeah. Well, that's that's a very nice uh, segue into the galaxy because we've talked yeah. about characters throughout, you know, yeah. and um, not a whole lot else. Uh, I think we've covered everything. I, I like that John Favreau's in it again. I think that's like the one thing I had 
that I was sad to see him, both Rio and Val killed off because I enjoyed those characters, even the small amount they were paid off, uh, which speaks to, again to the writing and the performance that, yeah, we cared about those characters, even only spending 10 minutes with them. But of course, they had to go so that there was a need for Han and Chewie to, to join up. But speaking of Maul, because he's the one thing with the Force that fits. You know, he's the one Jedi or Sith character that shows up. He's the one guy with the lightsaber. What did you think about his inclusion? Well, I'll tell you, my wife was confused. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because her first thought was, isn't he dead? And, (laughs) well, you see, if you get cut in half and fall down the shaft in Star Wars, that's about the safest way that you can survive. Palpatine lives, Maul lives. And, of course, you know, you watch Clone Wars, you know that he, you know, timeline-wise, he's alive. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fun piece for people like us who consume a lot of the Star Wars media, I feel like it might have been a little better for as like a more of an Easter egg, you know, something lying around. I will say, though, that I really wish that we had a sequel because I feel like that's a very fun area to explore. And I feel like by itself, it's fine. It's fun. But I wish we could have another movie where we could explore what Kira does in connection to Maul and how Han might, you know, interact with those two. I think that would be a really fun uh, story to explore. Yeah, I've heard you know, those same things. Isn't he dead? Or or also, like, so this movie's before Phantom Menace? Yeah. Like, getting confused <laughs> with the timeline. And and uh, the thing that I was excited about is, and that, that's very much, I mean, that is the epitome of fan service. It's like, if you have not been paying attention to the animated material, you are missing something. And you know, there's good and there's bad to that. I I, th- I thought that was pretty incredible way of saying, yeah, it all counts. So if if you're a fan of that, like this is kind of validation for you that this has happened, you know. And we've seen, like we you know, he lives right up into almost a new hope. You know, that's when Kenobi finally kills him on Tatooine. Uh, I love that it was Sam Witwer, uh, and that was a moment where the the reveal is is slow. You get his voice first. And I remember watching that in the theater and be like, that's Sam Witwer. <laughs> what is happening? And then it was like, oh my gosh, that's Maul. Uh, and then you get you know, that quick little duel the fate snippet right when he lights his lightsaber. And it's quick. It's just as quick as that original Imperial March or Imperial theme from, from A New Hope. So that's just fun. But I just had, you know, looking at culture, we talked about the empire deep in its reign. That was my big thing coming away. Uh, getting to see kind of more of the underworld with Crimson Dawn. I thought that was just a great reveal that, yeah, you guys are working for the bad guys and, you know, the Emphasis Nest, those guys are the good guys, like you said, the kind of proto-rebellion. And then just a lot of fun species stuff in this one, you know, with the Ardinian, which is great. All the Sabak players, getting to see the, the pikes in live action. And I really, really like the Lady Proxima species, Grindelid, I think is how you say it. You know, I think it's cool that, he, that she and Moloch are the same species, but he's kind of trying to pass off as like a humanoid. And she's like, no, this is who we are. So I thought that was pretty sweet. So let's see. I'm going to skip down if we have any any final thoughts about this. I think that Solo's one of my favorite of the new Star Wars films. I think it hits that area where it's a fun movie. It's kind of like a roller coaster where, you know, it's got all the twists and turns and all the, you know, fun moments. I enjoy going back to it over and over again. Uh, I think that it doesn't break the mold for Star Wars. You know, it's it's not, I, I think it's very uh, adventurous in the editing 
in the camera work, but that's more of just kind of taking Star Wars into more modern movie making. And I think we see that with uh, Ryan Johnson and JJ too. But I, I don't think story-wise it's really that adventurous. And I'm kind of okay with that. It is what it is. And it's just like a really fun adventure. And I would love to see more films like this. I also think that, you know, as we'll talk about later, there's room for Star Wars to grow into other things. And I think that they could take Solo and they could push it into more adventurous story spaces, really explore those crime syndicates and and what kind of stories you could tell with that. And I think that's a really interesting possibility that Solo opens up. Yeah, this sounds like this is the first one that we've reviewed that you're like, I don't have these massive issues that I'd like to change with it, <laughs> which is great. Um, just kind of playing off of what you said, because I had something similar to this too about the underworld is I was struck this time when sh- when Val mentions Bosk. Uh, and of course, we we only see Bosk, we see him in the Clone Wars, but the only time we see him in live action is, is in Empire Strikes Back when he's hunting Han. And so it kind of, for the first time, I realized, you know, a lot of those guys that showed up on the on the bridge of that Star Destroyer may have worked with Han or worked with someone who worked with Han. And so it makes sense to send those guys who would know, you know, know his haunts, know how to follow him, know his methods. And and that just kind of struck me as, wow, that's kind of ironic that he's yeah. built all these connections and that like that might come back to to bite him. You know, the, the bounty hunter we ran into and Ord Mandel, all those things, those might have been people um, that we we could see. For instance, like if there was a, a solo sequel, all those relationships could be kind of solidified that way. Uh, the only thing that I would, I don't know if I would change it, but what I really enjoyed is, have you read the novelization? I think no. we might've talked about this, is that there's an epilogue in the novelization where Emphis Nest takes the coaxium and meets Saw Gerrera. Mm. And Saw Gerrera has a teenage girl with him, or she's not even a teenager yet, and it's it's Jin Erso. So right. it just bridges all of that stuff together. And that, you know, you could argue maybe that's too much fan service, but I really enjoy the fact that, yeah, this is, like Han is already kind of, he's helping the rebellion already. Like they're really just putting all those pieces on the chessboard. So I thought that was a great addition to the book. Maybe you don't need it in the film, but I, but when I watch the film, I, I always think, oh yeah, and that's where that's going next. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, I think that's a, a fun piece. I think for me, fan service is best when it adds depth to either the world building or to the character. So like I brought up how L3 is part of the Falcon. I think that adds a cool piece of world building for why the Falcon's so special. So like, I enjoy that. Not to talk about it too much, but when uh, when we get R2-D2 and Luke in The Last Jedi and R2-D2 shows the hologram of Leia and Luke goes, that's a cheap shot. To me, that's a good callback because it's specifically using nostalgia against the character, right? not just for the audience. But R2 is saying, hey, remember the the person you used to be? And so that's like an in-character moment. And so I, you know, fan service can be done really well. And I think that Solo is kind of 50-50. I think there's moments of rich world building and character adding depth. But there's also moments like, like you said, when he got his gun. Okay, <laughs> I didn't really need to know that. Right. Like, sure, but it doesn't ruin the movie for me in any way. Yeah. Yeah. So my my final thought is just that it felt like an '80s movie to me. Yeah. And I know that you know Ron Howard did Willow, and that's an '80s movie, and it just reminded me of that feeling. Like it's 
like all the practical effects, yes, but just the tone. Like tonally, it felt like you said an adventure movie, an Indiana Jones movie, and like I'm a kid of the 80s. So that's just, you know, that hits all the sweet spots for me. So I enjoyed the film tremendously and I really enjoyed it this time looking critically at, you know, all these pieces we just talked about. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. Please check out our teaching resources at coruscantcc.podbean.com. And if you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and Instagram at coruscantccpod, or you can email us at c3podfeedback at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group, the CCC Common Room. It's a safe place to debate, collaborate, and ruminate on all things Star Wars teaching and film. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash C3 Common Room. Coruscant Community College. Because the Imperial Academy isn't for everyone. This podcast is not endorsed by the Walt Disney Company or Lucasfilm Limited. It is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. All names, sounds, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Disney and their respective trademark and copyright holders. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Coruscant Community College unless otherwise indicated. Nothing more will I teach you today. You've taken your first step into a larger world. We will watch your career with great interest. Coruscant Community College, because the Imperial Academy isn't for everyone.